What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Welcome back, friends, to our sixth episode. And today we are uncovering colorectal cancer, or also known as bowel cancer. But before we get into today's episode, I think, Dad, you might have an interesting follow-up about one of the case studies we brought up in our IBS episode. I think, was that the person that was misdiagnosed with, with IBS? With everything. Tell us more. So in our, in our last IBS episode, I think you spoke to us about a patient you had who was misdiagnosed yeah. with. She's not misdiagnosed. She's diagnosed with everything, you know. Oh, this she was diagnosed. <laughs> this is the one she saw the dietitian and she told her, you have got uh, IBS, you got gluten problem, you got lactose intolerance, she got SIBO, so she told her not to do anything and just the diet to just avoid everything. And she was okay. When she came, she had got problems as well. So I, we did the serology for uh, celiac disease, it was positive. So lately I did for her endoscopy and the endoscopy showed typical picture of celiac disease in the second and third part of the colon, of the uh, duodenum. Okay, and this, when I took biopsy, it was 100% diagnosed as celiac disease. Also, I did for her those insurance tests, breath test for SIBO, and both were negative. So she has no IBS, she has no lactose intolerance, no SIBO, she's got celiac disease. So I told her to see a dietitian and I gave her a book for strict gluten free, and then we'll follow her up on a regular basis. That's so the, the moral second. of the story is not to trust a dietitian, no offense, but not to trust a dietitian who will diagnose you without, yeah, I, think, I mean, a dietitians are not meant to diagnose people with, with gut problems or digestive illnesses. I think the, that's the gastroenterologist's role, but, and also, I mean, IBS is not something that you, you know, it, it is a, it is a condition that has to be accurately diagnosed by a medical professional. Let's try it. Okay, you can carry on bound for the uh, today's, today's episode. episode. Yeah. So as I was doing my research, I thought I'd put a little introduction to give people some insight as to what we're dealing with. So colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer worldwide with a strong association with diet and lifestyle. And alarmingly, we're seeing rates rising among young adults. Now, exact causality is complex and whether the rise that we're seeing is due to maybe more screening and better testing or because we're just being very dismissive with preventative measures or actions, that is yet to be uncovered. 
So today's episode is a reminder to screen early and take advantage of all the preventative measures out there to help you reduce your risk of developing bowel cancer before it's too late. Dad, what was the youngest patient you've you've had recently that you diagnosed or that you've diagnosed with colorectal cancer? He's 25 years old, okay? And he's Jordanian. He's life coach, non-smoker, doesn't consume alcohol. Uh, has no family history of uh, colon cancer. So he's presented to uh, another doctors there with the bleeding from the rectum, rectal bleeding for about a month with mild abdominal pain on and off. There's no previous history of similar attack, no fever, no significant, as we said, families. His examination was almost normal except mild tender in left groin. So. We did the uh, provisional testing, like hemoglobin. His uh, hemoglobin was normal. His stool was ochre blood, as we said before. The hidden blood is positive. His fecal calprotectin, the, the marker of the inflammation, is a little bit higher, 800. This is the first to start with. And for persistent bleeding in this age group, the first thing for diagnosis what I think, and almost of, or everybody will think about this, inflammatory bowel disease and inflammation of the colon. So was, that course. was your initial gut yeah, feeling, that it could be inflammatory bowel disease. Was that because of his age? It's, yes, age is presentation and, and no history of uh, colon cancer in the family. So either this or we call it ulcerative colitis, which is ulceration in the colon is a chronic problem, can and all, for example, just hemorrhoids, which is not uh, controlled well, something called angiodysplasia, which uh, is abnormal of the blood vessels. This is thinking in my mind. Yeah. So we ask for colonoscopy just to, to have the diagnosis. And after 35 centimeters from the normal colon, I found it just uh, very ugly uh, lesions. And of course, I, it, it looked bad and looked malignant. And uh, I took biopsies. And uh, after the patient came up, I told him, we, we never tell the patient diagnose this unless you have a tissue diagnosis. So I told him, frankly, it doesn't look nice, but we have to wait for the, the biopsy, uh, for, to, come for the biopsy to come back. Yeah. And later, after one, uh, one week or 10 days, biopsy came and it's definitely a colon cancer. And I discussed with him, you have to approach the patient in a nice way and to tell them it is... It's life-changing, Dad. It's yeah. not about a nice... I think it's... it's and it, it, Perhaps this is something that's lacking in the medical community sometimes. It's how do you approach this is, a patient this is true, yeah. but, but you have, you with don't, big news? You don't have to shock him with the, <laughs> with the bad news. You have to tell them in a nice way. and But tell him the truth, but... Tell him this Empathetic way, let's just say, more empathy. Yeah. And uh, you encourage him, give him hope that it, it might be curable. It might be, there is a lot of cure for these things. And because of his uh, insurance with law, he left to Jordan and he did all the workup for colon cancer that we'll talk about it when you tell the diagnosis. And everything was done properly. And the got him operated and he removed 
of course, the, the uh, lesion and safe margins and these things. And he came here for the last uh, two years. He's followed up regularly. He's free of cancer. He's healthy. He's doing his job again and he's happy. But he's always on follow-up regular basis. All right? So that's a 25-year-old. Maybe yeah. my, my quick question now, did you investigate a little bit about his lifestyle? About Not that, I mean, it's, it's pointless to sit there and try to pinpoint the cause of cancer, but I, I know a lot of patients might sit there and wonder, what, what caused my cancer? It's sometimes these sporadic cases because his lifestyle is very good. He's eating healthy. He's life coach and he's not obese or something. He's good. And if uh, sometimes the sporadic cases comes like this. Okay. Okay. The the second maybe case, hmm? maybe yeah. before we go through the second case, yes. do you want to define what colorectal cancer is? Well, it's the colorectal cancer is like any cancer is abnormal growth of tissues, which is not controllable. And this is a simple way of explaining what cancer is. It's cells, which is growing abnormally, cannot yeah. be controlled and destroy the normal tissue. Simply like this, because if we go through the uh, exact things, we, we will we'll be lost. That's <laughs> simple like this. And okay. colorectal cancer is basically this abnormal growth that happens in your bowel yeah. and or you know colon or rectal or both. Yes. yes. Okay. And Second what is case. polyp? I was going to say, what is a polyp though? Yeah, the polyp is a growth as well, but this is there is a types of polyps which is small growth, which is if you special types, if you left, it will be grow to cancer. So we have to be, that's why the screening is very important because if we remove these cancerous polyps, we, patient is cured. You remember, you know what I mean. So in layman terms, the, let's say bowel cancer starts off as a polyp. And if you don't address the polyps and don't screen, these polyps can grow uncontrollably to, to become cancerous. Okay. All right, now walk us through your second case. The second case is a Filipino lady. She is 51 years old, still young. She doesn't smoke or consume alcohol. She has no family history of colon cancer. Her presentation is different. Since July 22, she's got moderate abdominal pain on and off, recurrent loose motion with blood. She was seen by family doctor and giving course of antibiotics, uh, probiotic. She improved. Her hemoglobin is uh, nine, so she gave her iron. And uh, But still, she has change of the bowel habits and sometimes constipation, sometimes loose motion. She got general weakness from the anemia. Okay, when I saw her, I did the hemoglobin, as I told you, is nine gram, which is anemia. And her ochre blood positive. And the calprotectin is high. So, what was your gut feeling then? Did you suspect uh, yes, cancer? Uh, yeah, and when she have over fifty anemia, which has you cannot explain the iron deficiency anemia in this lady. She doesn't have period, which is no period to lose blood. There is no other way to lose blood except for for something that. So, anemia. The age of 50 or over, 
you have to think of uh, colon cancer. Uh, this lady on, in February, she was seen in July, and I've seen her in February. I did the uh, colonoscopy on 2nd of Feb this year. As soon as I went about 34 centimeter, I couldn't go in. That's with the during the colonoscopy. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't get in. It's very stenotic, so I have to uh, remove this scope, scope and and give pediatric one, very thin one. So I managed to go through this nodus and therefore big mass causing stenosis. Uh, uh, so what is what is st- exactly narrowing? Narrow, okay. Narrowing yeah. of the colon because of this, and then I managed to go all through the uh, the colon. Then there is nothing except this mass biopsy and colon cancer. Send her to the surgeon and they meet the, uh, when these things, they should be something lower MDT, multidisciplinary team, which consists of gastroenterologist, surgeon, oncologist, radiologist, all of this. Dietitian. <laughs> dietitian. And they, uh, they decide the best treatment for this. According to the Workup, complete workup for the uh, uh, for this colon cancer, and then we'll we'll talk about this workup later. And they decided this patient has no uh, distance spread or metastasis, so it wasn't yeah. spread. Yeah, yeah. So they did colon, uh, surgery for her, and she's under follow up. She's happy okay. and she's okay. And her hemoglobin come to now about uh, eleven or something. Okay, so this is another presentation, which they will lead us to the when we talk about the symptoms and the. I think no, I think it would be a, a. It's nice to present these case studies. I know people might think, well, we're going too medical, but perhaps it's a good presentation just to give. You know, these are very, very different people with very different backgrounds yeah. and very different ages. But also, when it comes to colorectal cancer, I think what's really interesting is that there's no family history. Of course, but now, you know, yeah. I I thought there was a you know we assumed or I assumed there's a huge genetic component to it, to developing bowel cancer. There is, yeah, but we we, we, we it is not as much as we know. We got some specific cases for uh, the family history and the spe- specific types risk of risk factors. Cancer. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. And a Number third case. Three. Therakis is a, a man of 48 years. He's from Kenya. Uh, he's a hard worker. He uh, doesn't smoke or consume alcohol. There's no history of uh, colorectal cancer. This patient has been treated on and off for rectal bleeding and anal pain, and he was given treatment for uh, hemorrhoids for some time, but he continued to bleed. So when he came to me, this is in August 22, and I've seen him on 2nd of Feb 23. He was having perianal pain, the pain in the uh, anal area. with rectal And they were bleeding. just treating him for hemorrhoids. Yes. And I tried to do a PR, which is uh, rectal examination rectal by exam. my finger. Yeah. yeah, It was very painful, and I couldn't go through because... Uh, there is a spasm and pain. So I told him we do the colonoscopy. I can do it later on. Okay, and we did the uh, the blood test, the provisional blood test first, and then colonoscopy, I did it on the 10th of Feb. This is different because as soon as he's asleep, we 
under sedation. I do a rectal examination. With my finger, I felt something there. All right. So when I went with the chronoscope, about five centimeters from the anal verge, I found big, ugly-looking ulcer. Yeah. It is in the rectum. Yeah. Yeah. It looks very big and about maybe three centimeters and uh, uh, with the uh, necrotic tissue around it and uh, it looked like cancer looking. Anyway. Did you not get, for that split second when when you've come across something like that, Mm -hmm. do you not get angry that his previous, let's say, medical team did not pick this up earlier? I, I got angry, but the problem is, you know, sometimes the uh, when you see patient with the first thing, they said, yeah, it's him, right? You give him something. And sometimes they do PR, they don't find anything, so they give him medication and see how it goes. And sometimes patient himself, he neglected, he said, yeah, he bled and he took the treatment and he just goes, he's okay. Goes so on living his life. Goes on, yeah, it goes on with his life and he doesn't accept when he has pain or something going on. All right. So I did the biopsy. It's, of course, it's in this patient has got something called poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma. And what this mean? The cells, if the cancer is not differentiated very well, which is a little bit of advanced stage. So we did the complete workup and we sent him as well to MDT team. And they decided for this patient to have radiation, chemotherapy, and later on they think of uh, surgery because of the position of the, uh, the, the tumor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, this is the three cases. So three very, very different cases with probably, yeah. you know, maybe positive-ish, out, two positive outcomes, one, one pending, yeah. I assume. But going back to symptoms, if we want to talk about symptoms of colorectal cancer, what are the most common symptoms? If you go back to our cases, you will, you will find that... Uh, rectal bleeding? Rectal bleeding first thing or blood in the stool. Yeah. Change of bowel habits, constipation of diarrhea. Iron deficiency, anemia, abdominal pain, weakness, fatigue, unexplained weight loss, all of these symptoms of we have to think about. And the age group is important as well if it is above 50, but 45 or 45. And now uh, we, we see a lot of patients with the uh, ages younger than we saw before. And when you say in the introduction that the colorectal cancer the older age group is decreasing a little bit because of the screening. However, on the other side, colorectal cancer in young patients above below 40 is a bit in the rise. So we have to be... uh, So, But maybe this is also we need to to start thinking about risk factors and risk factors in the environment because if it's not genetic and if it's not age per se, I mean, obviously there are these two very important components. Then we need to look at risk factors. So we, I can, I mean, in based on my knowledge, I would say, and a lot of the information I would say is is pulled out of the World Cancer Research Fund. Um, and this is we can put that in the show notes if people are interested to learn more about statistics and causes and what the evidence currently shows. But there is a risk. I mean, when it comes to let's say nutrition and lifestyle things that do increase your risk of 
colorectal cancer, and then I'm happy to talk about the food side of things in a bit more detail, would be red meat consumption and processed meats, alcohol, alcohol consumption. So these two, I think, have a strong, let's say, strong evidence to point out that they do increase the risk of colorectal cancer. There's one, again, maybe I don't want to talk about it so much, but I, because I, I don't really like to use the word obesity, because again, that's a whole, that's a whole other topic. But initially it was found that, you know, being overweight or obese can increase your risk, but we're slowly seeing that that is becoming debatable too. So I'm just putting that on hold and I don't want to discuss that further. Are there other things that, that increase your risk apart from, let's say, being over the age of 50, smoking, yeah. smoking, yeah. I feel like, I mean, I remember reading a statistics that if you smoke two packs per day, it increases yes. your risk of bowel cancer by about 40%. Oh, this statistics, but uh, do you know why smoking is related to colorectal cancer? It is how, it, what, what's the cause well, of how can smoking affect the colorectal cancer not in detail i assume it i mean nicotine <laughs> is a carcinogen you know, it's something else so uh, i might explain this in a simple way but i'll use some uh, uh, medical terms and explain it shortly you know there is something called free radicals yes okay the, this free radicals is a type of unstable molecule that's made during the normal cell metabolism. Metabolism is the chemical changes that takes place in a cell, okay? Yeah. These free radicals can build up in cells and cause damage to other molecules, such as the DNA, lipids, protein, okay? In, in smoking, the free radicals can cause development of the precancerous polyps in the large intestine, which can become cancerous and eventually Call this colon cancer. All right. So, so smoking uh, is there's a very, very yeah. strong relationship between smoking and the development well, of colorectal cancer. And you know that some studies uh, have shown that the risk of developing colon cancer from smoking is as high as as if you're having parent or sibling or child with colon cancer. So I think it's a good idea to stop smoking now. Well, for some people, so not even that is strong enough, but <laughs> smoking, okay, smoking is definitely a a very, very strong risk factor. Are there any other risk factors, Dad, you'd like to add? Yes, there is another two factors before we go to the other part. The uh, inflammatory bowel disease, like uh, Crohn's disease or uh, ulcerative colitis. The other one is as well, if you have personal history of other cancer like ovarian cancer or uterine cancer, uh, these people, most likely, they can develop uh, colorectal cancer. These the other two for the risk factors. Okay, so we've, we've covered symptoms, we've covered risk factors. How does diagnosis look like? We take it systematically and take the full history, including symptoms, family history, drug history. And usually we, we do a complete physical examination, including the perorectal examination. This is to start with. And then we go to the 
investigations. We have blood tests, stool tests, and radiology. The blood tests we can do the blood chemistry like full blood count to see any anemia. We'll do the CRP that is associated with inflammation. Then we can do the tumor markers. We stool we can go for ochre blood as we said many times yeah. and calprotectin for inflammation sometimes associated with uh, polyps. And the standard for diagnosis is the colonoscopy and biopsy. This is all right. So you, uh, I, I assume you have to have a yeah. colonoscopy to get a di- like a an official diagnosis. Yeah. So a colonoscopy is definitely crucial to getting a diagnosis. Definitely. And after the diagnosis, we'll go for full workup of colorectal cancer. We diagnosed it, and then we have to go for full checkup, like CT scan abdomen, CT scan chest, and pelvis. We can do an MR for MRI for the liver if there is anything there. So is that to check that the cancer hasn't spread? Yeah, that's right. Locally or distant, like in the liver or somewhere else. And definitely you have to do a PET scan before deciding the type of treatment or management we can go for. Okay, so once... Once you've come to the diagnosis, are you involved in the after plan or then do you hand it over to the oncologist and surgeon? Or are you, you know, do you see your patients again? Definitely, because we have to have a follow-up colonoscopy. (laughs) So we are involved even in the follow-up. Okay. Do a follow-up in a colonoscopy and see the the if they have removed the if it is operation done, we have to see the site of operation and the recurrence is so we are with the patient all through it. Okay. So I guess we can now move on to the prevention side of things. From, yes, from your side of view, prevention, how can we prevent colorectal cancer from the diet perspective? So I think prevention is also a big word because as I always tell my clients, cancer is a very, very complex area. It needs multiple ingredients to be working together for it to start developing, but it's about risk reduction. So looking at the science and what we know, the two, I would say, big points when it comes to colorectal cancer, if my clients tell me whether let's say they've got a family history of colorectal cancer or generally speaking, it is about reducing the intake of red meat. So that includes things like beef, lamb, offal, and for example, in Australia, it's kangaroo and processed meats as well. So these are your preserved meats like salami, prosciutto, ham, mortadella. And I'll talk about these in a second as to why we want to reduce them. And the other one is alcohol. So here's a question to you, dad. How many times a week do you consume red meat? Me or generally? Yes. <laughs> you. No, I reduce red meat a lot, uh, maybe three times a week. Okay. Yeah. So I'm yeah. probably the other extreme. Yeah, but that's where... right. I don't know, is it your, your extreme is uh, the good one or moderation is better? Yeah, but I again, I think you and I might disagree because I still think that three times a week is quite a lot given... Why we want, from a health perspective, but also from an from an environmental perspective, 
I'm not saying I'm experienced thought about, I, I don't think there's good or bad. I think you just need to find something that works for you. For the Western society, we do know that we consume way too much red meat than what we actually need. So in the context of colorectal cancer, what you know, there are possible reasons why we are advising people to cut down consumption. So when it comes to red meat, now we do know red meat is a very good source of iron. And we know that we have different types of iron in food. So for example, all your animal sources of iron, so things like your red meat, your poultry, some liver. seafood, liver, exactly, your offal, these tend to be sources of heme iron. Now, plant sources provide us with non-heme iron. So as you said, moderation is quite important, but... The issue is when heme iron is broken down in the gut, it breaks down into these compounds called N-nitroso. And these compounds are the ones that we are believing are causing damage to the, to the lining of our intestines that can lead, and that can lead to cancer. So it's these specific compounds. So a, a high consumption of heme iron is actually not good and not recommended. So for those who do consume red meat, let's say on a daily basis, I would say the first step was to, just like you said, I would say reduce it to about three days a week. But then if you do have a very strong history of, let's say family history of colorectal cancer, then I would highly suggest a person cut it down to once a week to once every two weeks. That's so, too much, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure anybody in the Middle East, they will go with this unless he's vegetarian. Yeah, um, but but then that gets you thinking, Dad. That really gets you thinking if the rates are rising, especially if you're seeing it in much, much younger, much younger population groups. I think it's also essential that you investigate their eating habits. You investigate the frequency of how often they consume these foods. So this another, is why... Another point before cutting it. Yeah, the, the amount of meat they eat each time. Because this is important. Absolutely. Well. I mean, this yeah, is another they, thing. Yeah, they, all, they, they can eat twice a week and uh, half a kilo every week. So it's <laughs> every time. But that's so what I'm a, saying. Yeah. So large amounts of heme iron, I mean, even if it's twice a week, but when I would say, you know, a portion, anything, you know, again, realistically speaking, I would say about 120 grams would be realistic in terms of, of, of a portion of... Yeah. 200 grams would be still too much. If we're really talking about reducing the risk of colorectal cancer, we have enough, I mean, we have enough evidence to show us that it is, again, I, you know, obviously it's up to the person, but at the end of the day, red meat, I would highly suggest to start cutting it down. And there are, new, you know, there are numerous ways that you can cut down your consumption of red meat. So a few things that we, we you know, I suggest to my clients is, you know, if you're trying to incorporate more plant-based sources of, of protein. Things like your beans, lentils, and chickpeas tend to be the most excellent substitutes. But you can you can make a dish with half and half. So if you're you know if you're used to making, let's say, a chili con carne, if you're used to making a bolognese with minced meat, you can start reducing the amount of meat, not completely eliminating it, but also adding a little bit of things like your beans or your lentils to it. So gradually you're reducing the amount of red meat that you're consuming. But obviously frequency and portions play a role. The other thing is, yes, Dad, do you want to ask a question? 
We'll try. We'll try to advise people to go <laughs> reduce it. Because you know, some of my uh, patients, he told me he loves, he has to eat meat every day. He do, he's doing barbecue and this thing. But I, I, of course, I'd advise him to reduce as much as he Especially can. Especially barbecue. Yeah. What people don't realize, it's even the method of cooking and the charring and all of that. What You, you don't want to be exposing your gut to, I mean, who doesn't love a barbecue? That's absolutely fine. But again, it's it's the frequency and how often, you know, how often you're consuming it. Because generally people who consume a lot of meat also tend to cook it either, you know, either have it grilled or on the barbecue. And, and that also is not the greatest method of cooking if you do want to reduce your risk of colorectal cancer. But this is another thing that I feel education is lacking. It's educating the consumer. It's educating a lot of people. As I said, I mean, culture, again, we can go into kind of cultural norms. But when it comes to health, too much red meat we know is problematic. That is an absolute given. Um, Regardless of colorectal cancer, when it comes to your gut, so you see this rise of the carnivore diet, you see the rise of the keto keto diets and ketogenic diets, and we see the impact it has on a person's gut health. And then when it comes to things like your processed meats, they also, again, uh, because of the preservatives in these processed meats, like the nitrites and the, and the nitrates, these are used in the in, you know to when it comes to things like preserving these meats. So these compounds are also broken down into these nitroso how do you say it? components that also increase your risk of developing bowel cancer so, so after this <laughs> recommendation so after this recommendation i would say try to bring more plant alternatives such as beans lentils and chickpeas if you want to have a vegetarian you know try to have at least one or two vegetarian meals a week as a beginning if you are a heavy consumer of red meat now, the next thing is alcohol. Alcohol is a double-edged sword, in my opinion. So the thing is, when we consume alcohol, it is absorbed in different parts of our gut. So in our mouth, in our small intestine. And then once it diffuses into our bloodstream, it's broken down in, in our liver. So this is where our liver functions as a detoxification system to get rid of it. So once alcohol is broken down, it is broken down into something called acetylide. As I always get this wrong, acetaldehyde, which is known as a cell poison or a carcinogen. So that causes a state of inflammation. So for this reason, chronic alcohol consumption is associated with cancers of the mouth, esophagus, stomach, and also your, your, your intestines or your colon, including the liver, and also increases your risk of things like inflammatory bowel disease. So a lot of the times people say, okay, is there a safe, of course, you know, this is again debatable. Is there a safe limit of of alcohol consumption? Yes, uh, I think I've got a table for the limits per week. And I advise people to go with it if they are insisting for alcohol. And it is very, if they go with this, so what is your recommendation, Dad? I'm very interested to hear. So just, uh, I can, but Do you know, most uh, likely about six, six or seven uh, glasses of wine every week. So you're probably very, very uh, sensible and moderate with your patients yeah. because I go to the other extreme where 
my clients get an allowance of four standard drinks per week. So that could be a standard glass of wine. It can be two gin and tonics, and maybe it could be one Prosecco. So I'm very strict with my clients when it comes to alcohol. And yeah, um, it's very important as well to advise them to stop one or two days in between. Yeah, not every day, every day, every day. Yep. So ideally to have two alcohol-free days. But again, for those who do not consume alcohol, they should not start consuming alcohol. Yeah, that's and for better. those <laughs> and for those who do drink alcohol, the recommendation there is try to find an allowance that works for you. Because I, as I said, if we are talking in the context of bowel cancer, we have very, very strong evidence to suggest that, you know, yeah, alcohol, right. high alcohol consumption is associated with an increased risk of developing colorectal cancer. So these, I would say, there are the two main food components or nutrition components that people need to avoid or reduce as much as possible. And then maybe one component that we should, again, we need to be eating more of, again, being very sensible how you're increasing yeah. your fiber intake. So yeah, this is important as well, yeah. We do know that having a high fiber diet really reduces your risk of developing bowel cancer. And it does that in multiple, multiple ways. We've spoken a few episodes before what fiber is and you know the different types of fiber. Yeah. But generally speaking, fiber just helps you poo more often. So it adds bulk to the stool. And you know, once you are regular and your bowel movements are regular, the the poo or let's say all these broken down contents spend less time in the bowel. So your intestines are not exposed to that for a long, long period of time. So that's one way we presume that fiber helps reduce uh, risk of bowel cancer. The other, for me, that's the other probably interesting benefit of fiber is we do know that when we do consume fiber, it passes relatively unchanged throughout unchanged. our digestive tract, exactly, until it reaches our large bowel. And this is where the magic happens. So fiber is basically food for our inner microbes. So this inner ecosystem that we talk about. And what happens is that fiber ends up being fermented or broken down into these components that are called short-chain fatty acids. So people probably, you know, either have come across them or not. And these short-chain fatty acids, which are the byproducts of your gut bugs fermenting fiber, are known to be anti-inflammatory and anti-carcinogenic. So they have huge, huge benefits. One of these compounds or short-chain fatty acids that's being, let's say, um, in the limelight, it's called butyrate. And what we know is butyrate really helps protect your intestinal lining. So it really strengthens the cells along your intestinal lining against cancer, for example, or it reduces the risk of any tumors developing along your intestinal lining. And one thing actually that I get my clients to do is we want to produce more butyrate. So there are three foods I want my clients to include to start producing more butyrate. They are oats, chickpeas, and barley. Again, all vegetarian. Exactly. So the power of plants. But this okay. is what we're seeing. We know how powerful plants are. And this is why I highly encourage people to start rethinking their diet, rethinking, you know, how serious they are about reducing the risk of multiple, multiple conditions by, you know, making small and gradual changes, starting with, with fiber. Okay. All right. What else in the prevention? So we've got 
reduce red meat and processed meat, reduce alcohol, increase your fiber. And another thing maybe that I assume you agree is, is movement. Movement so, is very important as well. The exercise. Yeah. Dad, remember we said we don't want to use important. We use the word important way too only, often. Only once. <laughs> I, I just used it only once today. So it's important. Yeah. So. <laughs> used it like three times. But anyway, we do know that exercise reduces your risk of multiple conditions, including the risk of bowel cancer. And again, this is because of preventing constipation. So preventing poo sitting there for a very, very long period of time. We do know movement helps keep your bowels regular. So this is why, again, I would really encourage those 15 minutes of some sort of movement daily. It's movement, movement, not not, some people, they said, I'm walking uh, in the the mall or something. You know uh, what? If that's the only form of movement they're getting, I would say, look, then increase the time that you're doing that if you're walking in a mall. But I walking, don't want... not, not to do uh, window shopping or you're walking <laughs> means walking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Again, as a start. So some form of movement and then you look at training in general. So that, you know, in so, some form of movement that you're enjoying and that you're likely to keep up for at least three days a week yeah. consistently. Dad, now that we've spoken a bit about the preventative measures one can take, uh, screening is also part of prevention, correct? Correct. I have a question. Do you think I should screen myself? I should get a colonoscopy to screen or I'm still not there yet? I don't think you should. No family history of cancer and uh, you're still young and you don't have symptoms. So we, we you can make it till when you are 45 or something. Okay. okay. Well, if you say 40, it's not so long. It's like <laughs> two years away from 40, so it's not that long. Okay, so yeah. around 45. Yeah. Uh, have yes. you have you screened? Yes. Oh, so you have. You've done yes. screening. Colonoscopy, yeah. Okay. A friend of mine did it for me. Yes. And why is it important to screen? Yeah, the screening, there is two goals of colonoscopy rectal cancer screening. First, to identify the precancerous lesion, which is the polyps we talked yeah. about later. Earlier. And and the other point, so we, when we remove the polyps during colonoscopy, we remove it and send it and see the type and see it is removed, all it's removed or not. And the second point is to identify cancer at an early stage. Because colorectal cancer, it is curable and preventable. Preventable if we discover the polyps and curable if we discover in early, very early stage, not invading the the wall of the colon. And it will be curable. So it is very, very essential to do the screening. And the screening depends on the country. Because every country has their different age, let's say age limits, for example, and if insurance is going to cover it or not. And for example, in Australia, they send you, everybody over 50 years, they send them by post to do the ochre blood. They tell you how to do it and send it by post every two years. And if it is positive, they will take you for colonoscopy. In uh, our recently, we, 
a colonoscopy is screening for people over 45. Where? In, in, in Abu Dhabi. Dubai. You, in, 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 in the UAE, yeah, right. Yeah. But in, we're struggling with the insurance to make this happen. We usually succeed or to some way or another to, to, to screen people. For, in Abu Dhabi, is going all in Dubai. We are on the way. Um, okay. So the screening is either by ochre blood by or stool by colonoscopy. Yeah. Right, so I either think, a stool test or a colonoscopy. Yeah, yeah but I, for my personal opinion, is colonoscopy is the coroner uh, diagnosis and screening for colorectal cancer. And now, you know, sometimes the polyps. There is uh, when we do colonoscopy, we we have when we draw the colonoscopy, you have to how many minutes we withdrawal because you have you don't go very quickly because there is detection rate sometimes it is not good in every center so and nowadays introduced in some centers in uh, UAE the how to detect it more the artificial intelligence in the colonoscopy so they they can detect if you missed polyp they can detect the polyp and uh, circulate and they can you can remove it. So Using the, AI? Yes, it is coming uh, amazing things now. Have you used it? No, it's oh. not available. <laughs> it's not available in our center. It's our okay. colleagues use it here. All right, well, that's interesting. <laughs> yes. And maybe my, my, one of my questions is, like, who, who should get screened? Everybody over... 45 or 50 according to the age. And if there is history, family history of first degree, you have to uh, be at, at least once regardless of your age. Okay, so regardless of age, you still yeah. suggest. So if you're 20, I, I remember talking to one of the gastroenterologists um, about it here as well. And he was like, look, if, if you have a strong family history, if you're 20 years old, go get that colonoscopy. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. This is no... No doubt about it. Yet. And then if you discover a polyp, when should a person go back again? So how often do you do you follow up it if depends someone's on, had a polyp? It depends on the type of the polyp. And it if and the polyp, if there is polyp without any something called dysplasia or changing of the cells. So we if you removed it without any dysplasia there by by biopsy, you can do it after three or five years. And okay. if, yeah, all right. So, and in, in, in some areas, which if there is no family history at all and discover polyp and it is not any uh, changes in it, you can tell after five years or 10 years. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, is there anything else that you feel is quite essential for our listeners to know before we let them go about colorectal cancer? Do you want to talk about treatment quickly? Not, not as, uh, not as as a treatment. I just headlines of treatment. Absolutely. So, what would treatment entail if if yeah. someone you know? Yeah, because we have to give everybody hope that it is we can treat as much as we can, and it depends on the stage of the cancer. Yeah. So after diagnosis, we will do the full workup, as we said before, and management of colorectal cancer, it is done by, as I told you, by a team consisting yeah. of the gastro surgeon, radiologist, and oncologist, 
and they decide about the mod modality of treatment. And we've got surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. Of course, there is uh, details of each one, yeah. but this is the main line. So these are the three main. Yeah. I mean, my from a, from a nutritional perspective, I would like to add a dietitian as part of that team as well because I used. To, I mean, one of my first jobs was working in oncology, and well, even though I was in Dubai, it should, it should be there. It should be there, but the, it's not always for some reason. This is the other frustration. I was going to yeah. say it's always frustrating because people underestimate the power of nutrition even during that time. So I remember working with a lot of patients after, let's say, bowel resections, where they do need a lot of support from a nutritional perspective. Definitely. Uh, when I uh, used to work in Dutch hospital and when I'm doing the round, I usually invite the dietitian to come with me on the round. I'm not sure uh, they, do it, they, they do it anymore or not, but... Uh, well, they definitely don't do that a lot here in Switzerland. Let's just put it yeah. this way. In Switzerland, nutrition is still very, very behind. But yeah. I think in Australia that it's very advanced. And I was very grateful to be part of like the MDTs and yeah. even just working on oncology. And that's over a decade ago. So we played a crucial role when it comes to oncology. And it's not just with yeah. bowel cancer, but all you know different types of, of gut cancers. Okay, well, mm. yeah, wrapping up, you know, be mindful of the power of prevention. Be, you know, educate yourself. Get the support that you need, especially if you're trying to change your diet to be, let's say, I'm not going to say vegan or vegetarian. I don't like placing labels, but let's say plant-centered, um, especially when it comes to red meat and alcohol and also ways to increase your fiber intake. So these would be my, you know, the keywords here that I want to leave our listeners with. And what would you like to leave them with, Dad? One point for the treatment as well, and the uh, will be in the future, is the gut mic microbiome in colorectal cancer. This this is will maybe targeted talk micro. About, yes, yeah. I want to dedicate a whole episode to that. This is targeted yeah. microbial therapy, and actually, there is a very interesting startup here that's discovered um, two bacterial strains. For, if I'm not mistaken, E, for the treatment, it was part of the treatment of um, bowel cancer. Yeah, so that's true. It's, it's an awesome space to be in right now. It's called uh, Recolony, bacterial based cancer therapy. Oh, yes. So you've heard of them. Yes, Recolony. Yes. A shout out to Recolony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One take home message, even uh, I just borrowed from one of the colorectal cancer surgeon, Dr. Vikram Reddy, he said, if anyone has any change in his or her bowel habits, if they have any bleeding, even if they think it's hemorrhoids and it doesn't go away, just get a colonoscopy done. It's very simple. And if yeah. you've got change of bowel habits, if you've got bleeding, which is even you think it is hemorrhoids and the, the bleed doesn't go away, just go for colonoscopy. Easy. And the that's, prevention, as we said before. That's a, that's a very good takeaway message. And that also highlights that we should be talking more about poo. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.